Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for coming. Welcome to uh, our panel on uh, spy fiction. Yes, sure. And uh, let us start. Thank you. Um, thank you to Olga for introducing the Russian component of this session this afternoon. We're determined to be even-handed in the best possible British way yeah, and yeah. to divide the honours equally between uh, a, a, Russian, a British citizen of, who had a Soviet upbringing, I think might be the best description of my colleague, Dr. Olga Sobolev. I'm Angus Wren, and um, we teach jointly a, a course in comparative literature and the Cold War, so what we're talking about today is very much in the tradition of um, the, the teaching that we do here at LSE. Well, um, the term the Cold War was, I think, actually an example of the conjunction of literature and politics and international relations, because, in, in fact, I think it was probably coined by none other than the novelist uh, George, um, George Orwell in an October 1945 essay called You and the Atomic Bomb, and then he repeated the, the phrase in 1946, after the Moscow conference last December, Russia began to make a Cold War on Britain and the British Empire. So in its very origins, the, this term, the Cold War, has a connection with literature. And today, in this session, we're going to be looking at um, the Cold War from the perspective of those who've been involved in writing up the historical account um, and those who've been... Um, involved in working for the Foreign Office and also practising as uh, a creative writer in, in the form of Alan Judd. So um, I think we now introduce Peter Hennessy first. Uh, yes, let's, uh, we shall introduce our, uh, our speakers. So uh, please welcome our, uh, Lord, Professor Lord uh, Hennessy, who is uh, an outstanding um, uh, historian of contemporary Britain and uh, an acclaimed journalist who worked uh, for, um, for the Times, for the Financial Times and for BBC Radio 4. Uh, Peter is also um, a very engaged academic. He's a professor of uh, contemporary history at Queen Mary University of London and, uh, um, and the author of many books, and the latest one is uh, Distilling the Frenzy, was published in, uh, just in June uh, 2012. And he's an honorary fellow of LSE and a very devoted fellow of LSE. He came to LSE in 1969, and as you can see, he's still happy to come Absolutely. now. And the others, all yeah. of those who work with us, because the last and bit was the toughest bit. Guy Mar, I can hear my voice. All sorts of nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> all sorts of people who should have known better, even allied with the circumstances of the time, about why women shouldn't have the vote. And that was extremely hard to win, and they won it, and they did it in great style. And the suffragettes, as the Daily Mail called them, invented whole new ways of political communication. They were brilliant at that. But above all, it was the moral conviction and the sustaining of an argument and sticking with it that did it, full of admiration. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Peter Hennessy. And our second guest today... Uh, is uh, Professor Christopher Andrew from Cambridge University, and I've been discussing with him in the last few days why it's the Cambridge spy ring and not the red brick spy ring. We've been mentioning that in the course of discussions, but I think in post you said that LSE actually has quite a lot of um, 
material it can acknowledge in the, in the field of espionage too, which I hadn't really known before, so um, I should be all ears to, to find out what that might be. So, yes, Professor Christopher Andrew is um, the author of the official history of MI5 and has also um, worked on the extraordinary story of the Metrokin archive um, in, in of Cold War intelligence records kept by a member of the KGB in Russia. And so we'll be hearing from uh, Christopher later, but here's a clip of Christopher talking Many about historians of modern Britain, like me, have spent much of their lives here at Kew at the National Archives, which contain most of the official records of the British government and its various agencies up to about 30 years ago. But the archives that I mainly used for my latest book, The Defense of the Realm, are far too secret to make their way to Kew. Nonetheless, there are some unexplored treasures in the early history of MI5, which are in the National Archives. And I'm off uh, with my editor at Penguin, Stuart Prophet, to have a look at some of them. Chris, we have some very remarkable photographs in the book, including, extraordinarily, one of an MI5 agent meeting Adolf Hitler just before the Second World War. Absolutely. I mean, before the Second World War, the Security Service had some truly remarkable agents, not simply putlets. But they had one who, for reasons I'll explain in a minute, was called the Mad Major. Why was he called the Mad Major? Well, we've got a picture of him here doing something which nobody has ever done since, uh, flying uh, beneath all the London bridges. This is a picture of him flying beneath Westminster Bridge. Now, Hitler wasn't easily impressed, but here he is. His name is Christopher Draper, a First World War flying ace who subsequently became a stuntman. And when Hitler heard about the fact that he'd flown under all London bridges, he was extremely impressed. And he talked to him for over half an hour at a Munich air show. And when Droger got back, he was asked if he would kindly become an agent for German intelligence, the Abwehr, and pass on everything the Germans wanted to know uh, about the Royal Air Force. And he said yes almost immediately, stopping only to ask MI5 if that was all right. And MI5 said it was all right, and uh, would he just keep him in touch? And this is the beginning of the biggest success in the entire history, I think, of MI5. He didn't really attract uh, very much favorable interest from the intelligence he was able to produce, but he was able to provide the contact details with the Abwehr, German intelligence, in Hamburg. And by monitoring that address, MI5 was able to discover the real German agents. And the one that it turned at the beginning of the war with the codename Snow becomes the first agent who is to deceive the Germans more successfully. It sounds a big claim, but it's imperfectly accurate. To deceive the Germans more successfully than any combatant had ever been deceived in any war by any other combatant. It's the beginning, in other words, of the double cross system. Many historians of modern Britain. That's enough. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, our third speaker today, um, is the person who brings in after history there with the first two speakers. The, the third speaker is uh, the figure who brings in literature. That's the figure of Alan Judd, um, whom I know, I think, originally through the work of, e, of, of Ford Maddox Ford, um, of whom you wrote a, a very important biography some ten or so years ago. Um, but uh, you've also written another biography of somebody with a single letter name. Yes, mm -hmm. C, the, the biography of the original C, Mansfield Cumming, the man who was responsible not for the Cold War, but for the very setting up of British intelligence in the time of the great uh, Anglo-German uh, naval build-up, really, in the, uh, the, in the 
approach to the First World War. Um, so Allen's combined both working in the Foreign Office in the British government with writing about the activities that are involved in espionage as a writer of fiction. And you've written, I think, now some nine novels in total, of which at least three are spy novels, um, Legacy and Tango, and the most recent of all, The um, Uncommon Enemy, I think, is a, in, in that, that genre as well. So well qualified to speak on the topic of both what it's like in real life and perhaps how it's turned into fiction, how it's turned into creative writing. And I'd like, in fact, instead of showing a clip of Alan, I'd like him now, uh, perhaps we may need to put the lights up a bit for this, uh, to read an extract from the novel Legacy, if you would be so kind, Alan. Yes, I, I've been bullied into this. He didn't tell me that he would want me to read. I never normally do readings aloud, and it's partly because... I hate being read to, and I just assume that everyone else does, and that it gets boring and my attention wanders very quickly. So I'll read very briefly. This is from a part of the book where an older intelligence officer is explaining to our hero, who is young, enthusiastic and naive, some of the differences in approach, not only between generations, but also between our young hero, and this is set in the 70s in the West, here in London, and the Russian intelligence services in terms of the, cold, the difference the Cold War makes. So they're sitting in a club in St. James's Street, Brooks's Club, of course, you know, it's all the usual stuff, you know, that you expect from spy movies, and they're discussing after lunch. Hooky, that's the name of the senior one, paused, his hands clasped across his chest, his unlit pipe on the coffee table between them, and his gaze on the sunshine and traffic of St. James's Street. Another reason I don't like reading is that in every sentence you find things you would change. So, I'm sorry. Um, so Hooky says, That is, the romantic elevation of the individual above all else, the cult of sincerity, the idea that if I really feel it, it really matters. The assumption of happiness and self-fulfillment as not only the natural state of mankind, but a right. I don't mean all that Ian Forster crap about betraying his country rather than his friend, which means betraying his friend's friends, but the insistence on validation by the personal, and the personal always coming first. He took up his port. Now, of course, I'm an old buffer, and I have to remind myself that I must seem to you like old buffers of the previous generation seemed to me when I was your age, but with this difference... They had been through the mill, the first war, as we had ours, whereas your generation has been blessed with unbroken peace and unprecedented plenty. Good for you. We, which includes your father, it's worth remembering, knew ourselves lucky to be alive, fed, housed and in one piece, give or take a few loose screws. We were less inclined to rate the importance of anything we were involved in in terms of our own feelings for it. It's not that we were morally any better, you would have been us and we you if the generations were reversed, but the struggle for survival compelled us to look first at what your friend might call the objective realities of a situation, rather than at the emotional consequences for ourselves, which came somewhat lower down the survival scale. That is essentially what Victor was getting at when he was berating you for your alleged lack of professional concern. That's not because he's a good communist. Believe me, there are very few real communists where he comes from. But because he was brought up in a country that stresses your duty to the state far more than what the state is supposed to do for you. Can I stop? Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>
Thank you very much. And then uh, my first question to uh, Peter and to Andrew. Um, you have written so many books, um, academic books, books on history. Have you ever considered uh, writing a spy novel? <laughs> yes. And I'm hopeless wow. at it. <laughs> but I'll tell you where the plot is. I'll give it, I'm giving it away, but I don't mind because we're all friends. In the archives, declassified after the Cold War was over under the Walgrave Initiative, which you historians will know about that, the material held back more than 30 years on the um, initiative of William Walgrave, who was John Major's Minister for Open Government, a whole cornucopia of files came out, and nuclear and intelligence, um, very sensitive stuff. And amongst them were the biennial transition to war exercises that NATO played, under the codename Wintex, and we'd always have a national one played alongside it. They took three weeks. Started with the, the stories were written to, to test out the system. And the story always began with the change of regime in Moscow to a bunch of adventurous nasties who tried it on, and it got out of hand, and it ends always with RR. RR stands for Nuclear Release Hour. But in between, to test out the system, no ministers were allowed to play themselves. They had a CCTV uh, system made for them. Mrs. Thatcher insisted on playing herself on one occasion, so they had to have a special exercise for her, which you would expect in her case. But anyway, in the files written by the assessment staff of the Joint Intelligence Committee in the Cabinet Office and the Home Office is the developing story of how international relations so deteriorate that we go from an uneasy peace to the end of the world. And it's not written like a novel, but the plot lines are fascinating. And they include domestic subversion, uh, the, the Russians trying it on with conventional and then chemical, and at the point at which it tips over. And the, they test the cabinet structure, too, uh, to the point where it goes into a small World War III war cabinet, and the government is, is disperses itself to 12 regions, with the war cabinet going to a particular place separately, ready for Armageddon. And I thought, in there is the plot of a novel... And I won't tell you what the plot is, because I still might try it one day. Yeah. But there, Whitehall's own version of The End of the World, written in Whitehallese rather than the language of the novel. But it's the most wonderful stuff. Most wonderful stuff. And indeed, as always with dealing with horrific things like The End of the World, you had to have, the Brits anyway, a joke, a good joke at the end of it. And a friend of mine in the 1970s played the Secretary of State for Defence. And RR came in the small hours of a Thursday morning... And they were all classical scholars in those days in Whitehall. And he turned to his colleagues and said, Seek transit Gloria Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Sir Alec Douglas Hume, who was the Foreign Secretary, watching the CCTV later, said, Who is that very facetious young man? <laughs> but you'll find that the comedy noir of those involved in all that was really highly developed. And so that is the novel that I shall never write, but it's the raw material of it. Maybe one of you will write it one day. Maybe I'll do it, maybe I'll do it. I do have a secret novel, which I shall never write for a number of reasons. Um, one is that Alan is, is uh, better at it, um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to him. But the, but the broader reason is, is this. The relationship between fact and fiction in the world of intelligence differs from that in any other profession in modern history, any other profession in ancient history, any other profession in the history of the world. And it's this. Intelligence is the only profession uh, in which a fictional character is many, many times better known uh, than any real character. Now, you know who I'm talking about, and if you don't, if you're watching the beginning of the Olympics, 
Only this great country of ours would ask um, the head of state at the age of 87 uh, to take her first parachute jump, uh, accompanied by an intelligence agent who never lived. Uh, this is a, a real challenge. So it's th- the normal way the boutiques like this go is that uh, you ask us difficult questions. Well, let me begin by asking you an even more difficult question than you may be able to think of asking us. Why is it that, uh, first of all, intelligence should be, if you agree with the proposition, the only uh, profession in the history of the world in which fictional characters are so much better known than um, uh, the real ones? And secondly, why is it, if you agree with the proposition, that uh, spy fiction is the only one of the creative arts since, but not before, approximately 1900, in which the Brits have been first, and the foreigners, frankly, have been absolutely nowhere. Um, So, as far as I'm concerned, uh, looking at the real world of intelligence, quite often you find episodes which, if you put them in a novel, nobody would believe. Look look at um, that episode um, that we just showed, the Mad Major flying under Westminster Bridge. Ian Fleming would never have dared to include that um, in one of the Fleming, uh, in the Bond novels. <laughs> None of the other producers would have dared to um, uh, put it in. So um, there's a really difficult issue there. And let me say that it goes back uh, through to um, uh, the, uh, the beginning of, uh, of espionage. Absolutely everybody in this room knows uh, the name of um, a major fictional or mythical spy from the Trojan Wars. I bet none of you can produce, but prove me wrong, the name of a real spy in the, um, in the ancient world. The one who everybody knows is Odysseus. I mean, Odysseus was you know, first and foremost a, a, a spy, but you will find that in, in the Trojan War, from time to time, he did go on... Um, uh, uh, spying operations because you know he's really about recreational violence um, uh, the, it was all pretty gory but also there's a gap of 3,000 years without question the two most successful um, deceptions in the history of espionage one the Trojan horse and then there's nothing which equals the Trojan horse until again linking up with that uh, little clip which I forgot about the double-cross system of the Second World War. So there we are. I've already presented you with questions which I hope are more difficult than the ones you will present me with. (laughs) Thank you very much for that um, question and answer in in the same uh, breath. Um, I would like to ask, uh, did the Cold War, which after all stretched from 1945 to 1989, um, did it have recognisable phases or was it the same mood all the way through? Were Mm. there significant changes? Um, Peter, perhaps you have well, I think the high Cold War is 1947, when the Russians walk out of the Marshall Plan negotiations in Paris, um, to the ending of the Korean War, because that was the period when every stage got worse and more perilous and more fraught, particularly when the Russians tested their first nuclear weapon at least 18 months sooner than Western intelligence thought they were going to. And until the Korean War showed that there could be talks that brought it down again, the scale of confrontation, because the backing down over the Berlin airlift was rather different from that. It looked as if it was uh, on an exponential of its own that could only end in one way. And this was reinforced by the thermonuclear weapons when a thousand times more powerful than the bombs dropped on Japan. Each side knew 
that it meant it was the end of everything if it got out of hand. So I think the moments of greatest peril, oddly enough, were the early atomic era. And so it runs from the, um, July 1947 to June 1953. And there are many successive phases after that. And the novelists who can pull it off, like Alan, capture a certain mood and moment. And quite often the 70s is disregarded because it's, it's one of those sort of nothing decades, really. Uh, there's a great myth about the 60s. I, I live for the 60s. It's certainly the alleged excesses of the 60s hadn't reached mid-Gloucestershire by the time I left in the late 60s. And the 70s is really the 60s. But in terms of the Cold War, it's pretty boring. But Alan has got the kind of drab reality of institutionalised confrontation with the intelligence world being the front line of the war. Could I briefly um, just add something to that? Because it's Chris's question. Ray Seitz, who is a very good American ambassador here, said that the Brits are particularly gifted at living in the imagination, which means they, they produce good playwrights, novelists and spies. And I think that's one of the reasons, well, Ray Seitz does, does know us very well still, is that we write heavier than our weight in the world, in the intelligence world, mm. as well as punch, because we have this kind of combination of reality and fantasy. And also, let's be honest, we've produced amazingly exotic spies. Compared to the bisexual sons of cabinet ministers like Donald McLean, the American spies have been extremely boring people. I'm afraid so. I mean, they, they spring from the womb, ready for the treatment that Alan and others can put upon them. write a novel about Paul Chains, for example. I mean, they'd be desperate. I mean, given, given, the, given our wonderful class structure and the fact that we've never been able to handle sex without bursting out into laughter or colouring up red in embarrassment, you've got amazingly rich material because of the neuroses of British males. Discuss. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I think... <laughs> why are so many British books about spies and why are so many British spies, fictional spies... I was thinking about this on the way here, and I mean, it's possibly something to do with the recruitment into the intelligence services, because to a large extent, or at least to a significant extent, the British intelligence services in the first half of the 20th century recruited lots of people who went to gentlemen's clubs. Now, you know, this is what Eric Handler called snobbery with violence in the way they were written about and so on. And they were also drawn from a part of society which was quite literate and in some ways quite literary. So you got involved in, you had involved in intelligence largely as, as a result of two world wars, people who were naturally writers. Now I suspect that most other intelligence services probably didn't recruit mm. quite in that way. Mm. They didn't recruit those, your normal KGB apparatchik or NKVD apparatchik or whatever he was or Abwehr apparatchik wasn't that kind of person at all. But for some reason in this country, those kinds of people were recruited and they were perhaps attracted to it as well, mm -hmm. largely for the, the reasons that I think Peter quotes. I mean, That's a theory. I mean, broadly speaking, in order to become an apparatchik, you have to prove that you're boring. Um, and uh, that is not proved necessary in the case of British intelligence. Hasn't Tim always got it right? But just to pursue a little bit uh, the, the, the Cold War... Um, now, the, many of you, the majority of you here, will have grandparents. And your grandparents, in most cases, I would hazard the guess, have never talked to you about whether they thought the world was going to end 51 years ago in the Cuban Missile Crisis. But you will find, if you talk to them, mm. uh, that uh, a very large number thought this was a, a real proposition. So, um, on this side of the Atlantic, it's less clear than the other side of the Atlantic, um, American children knew they might die. Why did they know they might die? because virtually every American schoolchild 
uh, was taught during the Cuban Missile Crisis how to hide under a desk, there are photographs of it, and adopt the brace position. By the way, if there is a nuclear attack, you'll find that doesn't do much good. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the, the, the British case, um, the children had to, if they were young children, work it out for themselves, and some of them did. I mean, when I first asked, um, started asking students in Cambridge uh, to um, uh, ring up and grey mail text, otherwise uh, communicate with the grandparents, I was amazed at uh, what happened. These are not, of course, typical stories, but I've come across a series of stories in which five or six-year-olds uh, realized that they might die as a result of a crisis which didn't end in war. So I'll just give you the uh, uh, first. Uh, this lad, um, I said, uh, you know, the following week, um, do you um, ring up your, your grandmother? He said, yeah. And uh, also my mother has a, a memory. What had happened was that during the missiles crisis, his mother, uh, both her, her mother and father were around in the house. The, the father was in the Royal Navy, but um, he was on leave. And um, the parents started talking about death and destruction. They tried to talk about it in a way that the little girl would not understand. But it's happened to you from the moment that your parents start talking in a way that you're not supposed to understand. Boy, you really pay attention. And uh, that's what happened in this case. So the, the, uh, the little girl uh, stood up um, in um, uh, at the age of five or six. She can no longer work out, um, well, she could, but she didn't for me, whether she was five or six in the reception class, and said to the other children, you are all going to die. Uh, at the time, I thought, well, you know, began to hear other stories, and I realized that it happened. Now, the, the, other, the, the school, by the way, handled it very well. Um, I don't think schools would handle it quite as well nowadays. She wasn't criticized. Another teacher came in to pacify the children. She was taken off to the head teacher's study, and the head teacher rang up her mother to take her home, which is why the, um, uh, the, uh, the mother remembers. But think about it. By the time you were five or six, you probably had some experience of death in or very close to the family. So you knew what death consisted of, and your first experience of it would have been pretty shocking. So if you hear your parents talk about an awful lot of people going to die, it's not an abstract concept. So one of the, the great weaknesses in the history of international relations is that children's opinions are never taken into account. And anybody who disputes that, leaving aside you know, the London Blitz and so on, just, just give me an, uh, an, an exception. So one of the really wonderful books that I will never write is um, uh, Children and in International Relations. Yeah. Um, could I um, ask um, Alan a, a question? Uh, that um, You've written both biography and fiction. Um, here we are in a, in a basement room with three members of the establishment. We're all linked up to microphones and we're putting questions to them. Yeah, establishment, that's yeah, nice, thank you. Um, anyway, yeah, you, it's good, you've written it? novels, you've written biographies. I just wondered whether um, writing the bio, you, you wrote the biography of Ford Maddox Ford, and I think after that you wrote The Devil's Own Work, which mm. you know, very much uh, couldn't be written without mm. Ford, Ford Maddox yeah. Ford, I think it's true yeah. to say, isn't it? And I would recommend that as an introduction to Alan's work, I think, as um, the first novel, perhaps, to read. But um, you've, you've written spy novels. Did you write them before or after writing the biography mm. of C? And could you tell us a little bit about C and maybe the pen knife and the leg? Um, uh, well, yes. Yeah. Um, let's start with C. I mean, C was Mansfield Cumming, a man called Mansfield Cumming. And he, in 1909, along with another man called Kell, 
was invited to form what became MI6 and MI5. They were one organization originally for about a year, <coughs> the Secret Service Bureau. Mansfield Cumming was a 50-year-old retired naval commander and a rather vivid personality, not obviously suited to uh, founding an offensive overseas-based espionage service which was supposed to speak all sorts of other languages and deal with foreigners and get foreign intelligence. Whereas Kell, who founded MI5, was a linguist, could speak Chinese, I think, and Russian, couldn't he? I think. Had translators' and, qualifications. Yes, travelled overseas very widely, was a much younger man. You would have thought they'd have been the other way around, but they weren't. So Cumming founded MI6, or founded what became <coughs> MI6, and had a good First World War. But at the start of it, 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 he had a personal tragedy. He had a son, just one son, who was in the army and whom he pulled heaven and earth to get to France in 1914 when the war broke out because every soldier or officer who was at home on leave from India, as this young man was, wanted to get to the fighting because everyone thought it would finish by Christmas. As the Germans saw that too, indeed it had to for their plan to work properly. And um, Mansell Cumming was able to get his son over there he went over to see him. His son was in the, the newly formed intelligence corps. They went off together on what was possibly a recce of something. We don't really know what they were doing. In Cummings' Rolls Royce. And probably Alistair, the young man, was driving and it overturned at night. Alistair was killed and Cummings lost the lower part of his leg. So thereafter, he was one-legged. He had um, an artificial leg or part of it. And it is said that he had this trick in Whitehall meetings sometimes, as well as arriving by scooter, because of the long corridors in Whitehall, it was quicker with a scooter. Um, he had had a pair of compass needles with a sharp point, and sometimes if things weren't going his way, he said, I'm sorry, I'm simply not going to put up with it, and jab these things into his leg and leave them quivering there like that. And with people who didn't know him, of course, it was mesmerising and <laughs> distracting. And it said he quite often got his way by just going on talking whilst this thing quivered. That was the kind of rather colourful figure that he was. Um, it's tempting. I have thought, you know, why not set an intelligence novel in the First World War? But there are lots of stories that you could use. There are lots of vivid characters around. We've all got this sort of We've all got the background of the First World War anyway. We don't have to explain about the trenches or anything like that. We all know that bit. So you've got a lot of context that is just scenery that is usable. But what we don't have very much about in fiction, certainly, is the non-frontline bit. It's all first day of the song in 1916, whenever we treat it in fiction. We don't know much about, say, the worldwide naval blockade that made such a huge difference to Germany. We don't know much about the espionage war that was actually waged very successfully or the, the signals intercept operation which did in the First World War, known as Room 40, what Bletchley Park did in the Second World War. But it's much less well known. Of course, radio is less important, which is partly why. So I think there's quite a lot of scope for what one could do in that time. And I think um, what's it, um, a well-known modern novelist, whose name I've forgotten at the moment, but you all know, 
I think he's just produced a book that is set in intelligence in the First World War, hasn't he? Oh, I, um, I don't know that. He wrote A Good Man in Africa. That was his first book. Oh, um, um, William Boyd. William Boyd. William Boyd. Yeah. Yeah. I think I read that he's, he's done one just yeah. recently, but I don't know what it's like. Well, I'll wait if you return to that period, having done the, the work yeah. for, the, for the biography yeah. originally. Could I, thank you very much, um, Alan. Could I turn to Peter on this question of history? Mm. Uh, and maybe the question also for Christopher too. Do you think that the Freedom of, Freedom of Information Act, FOI, has been a good thing for the writing of the history of the Cold War or a bad thing? It's not the Freedom of Information Act that's worked, it's that Walgrave Initiative. Mm, yeah. Because in the first seven years of it, before the Freedom of Information Act was passed, let alone came into operation, we had 96,000 files declassified. It's probably a quarter of a million now. And that's the one that's made the difference. <laughs> And also, those of you who do have done theses or are doing them will know there's no point getting a fragment of a document. You need a whole run of them. And we've got proactive releases, as they're called in the trade, as a result of the Walgrave Initiative. So when you get in touch with the department, ask for it under the Walgrave Initiative, because the Freedom of Information Act drives people completely up the wall. I mean, I'm all in favour of it, but it's not use- that useful for historians, so the Walgrave Initiative is. It's a great tribute to the major government, that, because the major government's gone into that limbo that recent governments have uh, disappeared into. And John Major is such a nice man. Uh, one of the few crosses I carry in life is he thinks he's looking in the mirror when he sees me. I'm not a vain man. And we have a competition. I don't know why I tell you this. It's a state secret. Of who wears the loudest socks. So whenever I see John Major, he goes, socks, and we do this, see? <laughs> and one of us wins. Uh, but anyway, he, his great contribution to history through William Waldgrave, who's a friend of Alan's and mine, and I think Chris's too, who's that rare thing, a scholar-politician who reads a lot of history. So that's made all the difference. And so I go that route, the Walgrave Initiative, rather than the Freedom of Information Act when you're trying to get stuff. I'm I'm sure that's right. I mean, uh, what tends to be forgotten is that the three intelligence agencies are 100%, by which I mean 100%, not 99% exemption from freedom um, of uh, intelligence uh, uh, legislation. Now, they interpret it differently. Uh, SIS, MI6, uh, uh, releases nothing, so you still can't find details of exactly what happened to Mansfield-Cummings-Leg um, in, the, in the archives, although I uh, interrupt myself to simply say it's another example of um, uh, the, the difficulty of, uh, given the extraordinary nature of what really happened. I mean, none of you would contemplate writing a novel, would you? In which, in the middle of a difficult meeting, uh, the, um, uh, the current head of um, SIS, MI6, Sir John Sawyers, pulled out a compass and stamped his, his leg. You'd never get away with it, but it's the kind of thing that happens in real life, but not in, uh, uh, but not in novels. Um, so the Waldegrave um, I- initiative was the one that uh, really, uh, really matters. And what has been released not under FOIA um, uh, so far as the Cold War is concerned, I think is exceptionally um, important. I'll give you an example in a moment. Uh, MI5 operates something approaching, but not actually at, a 50-year rule. So it doesn't have any, any um, uh, compulsion to uh, write, um, to release uh, anything. But if you, if you take the latest bestseller on uh, intelligence, uh, called the Walton's Empire of Secrets, which, you know, um, does what I think no previous historian of the end of empire has done, puts the intelligence uh, back in. That is, uh, in its overwhelming majority, based on, uh, on files which have been released by MI5. It tends to be forgotten that MI5 was responsible um, during the period of decolonization for the empire, um, as, uh, as well as for the, um, 
for, for the United Kingdom. So the, the history of the early Cold War has already been changed uh, by what has been released, and it's Waldegrave, and not Foyer, who deserves the credit. Mm. Could, could you tell us please a little bit on Mitrokin archive? Oh, <laughs> just, just a little bit. Well, I have been really fortunate because I've had privileged access to the um, uh, entire archive of MI5, but that was because I did that the easy way. I went in through the front door, uh, became for a period a member of MI5 and was allowed to look at, um, uh, at all, the, uh, uh, all the archives. It was a real thrill because the archives are brought up from the basement on a, uh, a little monorail and there's a charming little, um, uh, I may be proud to be British, um, a uh, charming um, uh, little um, uh, railway with a laser recognition system on it. KGB was much more boring but even though the KGB never gave, allowed me into the, the archives, I knew, knew two people who did. Uh, that's to say, um, in the second half of the Cold War, it tends to be remembered, that, uh, forgotten, that uh, just as the Russians had the best buys for the first half of the Cold War, we had the best buys for the second half of the Cold War. And there was two that I've um, uh, uh, worked with and who showed me the stuff that they brought out. One was uh, the man who so impressed uh, Gorbachev when Gorbachev came to Britain for the first time to see Margaret Thatcher at the end of uh, 1984, a few months before he became uh, official leader. And he was so impressed by the head of political intelligence in London, Oleg Gordievsky, that he had him made head of KGB operations in Britain, entirely unaware that he'd been working for uh, the British for the previous 10 years. Uh, so we published a couple of volumes of the documents that he brought out, and uh, I struck me as quite interesting, really. Uh, but uh, then, in the mid-1990s, I had an even greater stroke of luck. I mean, if a historian wants to recruit um, a spy, what do you do? You recruit the archivist. Mm. And this is the only known example, uh, so far as I've known, in the history of intelligence, of an archivist um, squirreling away for 12 years the most interesting stuff that he could find in his own intelligence archives. He was um, uh, an ideological agent. So here's the problem. He's got this incredible archive. Um, and how do you get it to, uh, to the West? Well, you can't go up to people in Moscow and say, would you like this, because you know, all the embassies are covered and so on. But when the Soviet Union is falling apart uh, in the winter of 1991-92, uh, you know, and new countries like the Baltic Republics are coming into to being, he decides to get on the overnight train with a sample of his, uh, of his stuff and uh, uh, try and hand it to, uh, to the West. So he was dressed, there's a picture of him in one of the books that I wrote with him. He's essentially dressed as a, a street person. I mean, whatever is uh, ill treatment, uh, you know, people who live on the street are subject to in uh, uh, London, nobody ever goes up to them and say, are you working for a foreign power? Can I see if you've got any uh, top secret documents in your inside pocket? And to discourage them in any case, he put um, some of the, the documents at the bottom. Then he did you know, the standard uh, trick in the, um, uh, in the history of smuggling dirty underwear on top, clean underwear on top of that. Um, uh, then food and drink for the Germany, including very highly spiced um, uh, sausages. Anyway, on the overnight train, he got to a, um, a uh, republic in the, uh, one of the Baltic republics, which I, I shouldn't name, there are only three, so you've got one in three chance of guessing 
what it is. And he went to the American Embassy in 1992. Everybody, you know, as it seemed, was you know, circling around the American Embassy trying to get a visa to go to the United States. Um, wasn't happening in Britain. So he then went to the, the English Embassy. So he went in. And this is a moment that changed his life. But actually it also changed uh, my life. Uh, he took in his little roll bag and said, I've got to top secret KGB documents in the bottom of this. And I need to speak to somebody in authority. There was a, a, a young uh, third secretary, and she still doesn't want me to mention her name, uh, so I won't. And um, uh, she had a look at some of this stuff, and she immediately realized it would check out. Because what he had brought along uh, were documents which contained the details of illegals. In other words, those who are posing not merely as somebody else, but somebody of a different nationality. And they'd got their bogus passport numbers and their real passport numbers and so on. And she knew that SIS, MI6, would have details of, of uh, some of this. So uh, what she did was to ask a question, uh, which gives, still gives me a thrill of patriotic pride. And no intelligence officer from any other nation could possibly have asked a truck in at that point. And the question was, would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> so, <laughs> while he was having his first cup of, uh, of English tea, she looked at this stuff and realized that if it was genuine, it was gold dust. And uh, so, um, MI6 in this newly independent country didn't yet have a station. Uh, so, um, uh, she arranged for him to come back, and by that time, he had uh, looked at, um, at the stuff, and uh, uh, it is, uh, it is uh, extraordinary. Uh, the... Um, the rest of the story, uh, last 700 pages, but I've written it up in print, so I won't repeat it now. And I just wanted to add one of the books that uh, you wrote about this affair. Uh, <coughs> it's called uh, the, uh, the Sword and the Shield. Yes, that, well, that was the American edition. That was an American edition. That's very interesting because uh, uh, in the 60s, there was a cult spy thriller, which every Russian knew by heart called The Shield and the Sword. Mm. So I, we, I find it kind of fascinating, all this kind of symmetry of, uh, of, of title. Well, it's, it's, it's one of the continuities. Um, mm. uh, after all, the emblems of um, uh, the Chekhar, the first manifestation of the KGB, immediately after the, the revolution, with a sword to defend the revolution against its foes, counter-revolution, uh, uh, beg upon the shield to, and then the sword to smite its foes. The FSB today has exactly the same symbols. It does have a double-headed eagle as well, which didn't exist in the old days. Um, on, on that subject of change, could I put this question, has MI5 changed, how significantly has MI5 changed in the last uh, 20 years since the fall of the, the war? Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think there is a great deal of, of continuity in um, the way that it goes about its work. But it's now, after all, overwhelmingly a counter-terrorist organization rather than a counter-espionage uh, organization. You know, Russian espionage in uh, Britain is still at the level that it was in the later years of the mm -hmm. Cold War. Chinese espionage is somewhere off the, um, uh, off the top of the scale. But if there's not the likelihood of thermonuclear war, then espionage, even though it should be discouraged, uh, at least by other powers, we should be allowed to do it, um, uh, it's, it's, it's not as, uh, as, as threatening. But, you know, um, the biggest successes, intelligence successes that we've had um, over the last uh, decade, a little bit more, have been things that have not happened. Now, you can take the view, one of two views. Either 
Yeah, there was never going to be 9-11 because those nice people in Al-Qaeda would never have tried it on us, would they? Oh, yes, they did. They tried it on us before the Americans, but uh, they were under surveillance, so they um, uh, didn't um, um, uh, get anywhere. Uh, or the, um, you know, the other explanation um, is that they have actually uh, tried it um, on, and the reason that they have failed is because without nonetheless a perfect level of success, 7-7, uh, after all, was a failure. I was in, in uh, MI5 uh, headquarters uh, at that point. I know what a traumatic um, period it was for the people inside the buildings, uh, well as far more traumatic, of course, for uh, the, the, the families of the 50 people who had, um, had been killed. But we tend not to see this in, in, in perspective. There's still this ludicrous idea that uh, MI5 has particularly had it in for Muslims. Well, actually, the first terrorist threat after World War II was the Zionist threat. Um, the main, uh, the only period during the Cold War uh, when uh, terrorism was the chief priority of, of MI5 was uh, during the period uh, when Irgun, headed by a future um, Prime Minister of Israel, Menachem Begin, and uh, the Stern Gang, the last organization in world history to be a terrorist organization and call itself a terrorist organization. And, you know, it gets steadily closer, blowing up the King David Hotel, blowing up the British Embassy in Rome. Then they plant an equally big bomb in the colonial office, now part of the foreign office, on Whitehall. But the, the female bomber who, who, who uh, does it, and of course, uh, in those days, the idea that females might plant bombs meant that the best people to plant bombs were, in fact, um, women. But she doesn't fuse it uh, correctly, so it doesn't go off. But had it gone off, it would have caused as much damage as the... Uh, the King David um, uh, Hotel. So that's the big shift from, uh, in terms of priority from counter-espionage um, to counter-terrorism. And it will be the priority for the next 30 years. So just one um, uh, example. The most dangerous terrorist in British history um, is um, uh, uh, somebody whose name you, you may not know, and, but his name is Darren Barrett. Uh, he's in jail, and he's in jail for a very long time. It's not because of what he did, but what he wanted to do. He wished to be the first terrorist to plant a dirty bomb in London. Now, dirty bombs um, are not tremendously difficult. All that you need is radioactive material and an explosive and a shopping bag. And uh, then it doesn't cause a nuclear reaction, um, but um, you would have to close down LSE if one uh, was um, um, planted anywhere near the LSE. Well, think about it. Um, he didn't get as far as actually doing it, and he was sentenced for um, other, you know, other more proximate plans. Only two options. One is there will be no more deer and barrets, and the other option is there will be more deer and barrets. It's pretty difficult to think of a bigger priority than stopping more deer and barrets, wouldn't you say? Thank you. That analysis there. I, I, I was interested you touched on the role of women in talking about the... Uh, actions just after the Second World War there. Mm. Of course, one of the changes in MI5 has been the appointment of the first uh, woman director. In fact, there have been more than one woman director, I think. Two. Uh, two, yes. yes. And, and also the very fact of acknowledging that in public. But I think we have a clip, haven't we, of um, Dame Stella Remington um, talking about the importance of Russian, which brings in, oddly enough, literature, because two key figures in 20th century literature, post-war literature, Michael Frayn and Alan Bennett, both ended up learning uh, Russian language as a consequence really of the, of the Cold War. And I think that's had... Uh, at the public expense as well. Yes, yes. Can we skim the mic? That's right. 
The new situation with Russia after World War II had one rather surprising consequence. If Britain was to know what was going on behind the Iron Curtain, we would need speakers of Russian to listen to radio transmissions and interpreters to interrogate Soviet prisoners in case of war. So 5,000 studious young men discovered that instead of the usual gruelling physical regime of national service, they would instead be learning Russian at the Joint Services School for Linguists. I'm off to meet Dr. Harold Shukman, who was on the course. The recruiting officers had to be sure that they weren't taking too many people from the natural officer class and turning them into Russian linguists, when they could do that perfectly well with mostly grammar school boys, which they did. It was mostly a grammar school boy catchment, I would say. Very bright, very bright people, very interesting. Lots of them became writers, people interested in music, classical music. Writers Michael Frayn, Alan Bennett, D.M. Thomas and Dennis Potter are among those who were on the course, taking with them an appreciation of classic Russian literature, as well as the language. What kind of people were teaching you on the course? Well, there were a very interesting bunch of emigres of different kinds. There was the old emigres who had left Russia after the 1917 revolution. Many of them aristocrats, princesses, princes, who spoke beautiful Russian. It was a very different kind of Russian from subsequent generations. And then Soviet defectors and refugees from the Second World War. They spoke a different kind of Russian. It was much coarser. (laughs) <laughs> One of the most striking people among the instructors was a man called Dmitry Makarov, who uh, used to take um, poetry classes and also put on um, plays in Russian. Grouped around me is the all-male cast of the service production of Hamlet in Russian. As you can see, these people are dressed in mid-18th century costume. This is, in fact, Hamlet set in 18th century Russia. And for a long time I just thought, well, this was a kind of idea that it would be good to put on plays to help (coughs) us learn Russian and to create an atmosphere. But I discovered later that this was actually a policy. The Air Ministry, which was responsible overall for the courses, decided that this would be the best way to energise students, to get them involved in all kinds of Russian cultural activities to promote a kind of fluency. Did you go on to use any of your Russian in earnest? Well, yes, I spent my life as a a teacher of Russian history. There was an explosion in uh, the Russian departments of British universities. A lot of the um, teachers and academics of my generation in the British system, both in schools and universities, had done the Russian course. Most of these links... Russian realities and Russian language seems to be, seem to be important for uh, 
And Glover uh, cross dressing too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what, um, uh, for instance, I'm referring, say, uh, to the latest, well, not one of the latest novels of John Le Carre, A Most Wanted Man, where, well, uh, in my view, and I have supporters on the Russian side, all cliches about Russian oligarchs uh, were used. So, well, we had an impression that. Uh, he wasn't very uh, on top, very much on top of things. I would say, in uh, well, in comparison to his earlier novels, what 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 do you think? Well, every country thinks every other country that writes about them gets it wrong, because a lot of people who write about the United Kingdom, even if they know it quite well, think there is a thing called the British establishment where both men and women with tweed-clad minds rather than Armani-clad minds run everything from behind the scenes under suitable camouflage. And people are deeply wedded to the notion of the British establishment. And they would automatically think that we three were part of it. Mm. Um, and yet, there's something in it. Of course there is. But uh, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, most people want nature to imitate art. And General de Gaulle, remember, he opened his memoir with a wonderful sentence that no Brit would ever write. I always had a certain idea of France. I mean, what a wonderful opening. We all have a certain idea of another country. And people are very happy when it lives up to it. I remember somebody saying to me in 1970, it's such a relief that Lord Carrington is now the new Foreign Secretary with the Conservative government back because he looks and sounds and behaves as the world expects a British Foreign Secretary to look and sound and behave. And I think that's exactly the same. And if I was in the business of disinformation, if I wasn't in the intelligence world, I would put out stuff that lived up to the parody that the target nation for the mm. disinformation mm. really wanted. And that's why the opening sequence of the Olympics was so brilliant, because over half the world seen a Bond film, the only thing they other know about the United Kingdom is the Queen. And so to put the two together was absolutely stunning. And so the more self-parody we can put out, the better. I mean, somebody that we all know, I won't name, well, they said it publicly, I think, former chief of the Secret Intelligence Service. And uh, I asked him this years before he said it publicly, and he, isn't it a real pain for you to have... <coughs> James Bond films, conditioning the way people think that your service operates. And he says, no, it isn't, actually, because we are not as rich as the Central, the Central Intelligence Agency and we can't stuff brown envelopes with quite as many dollars as the CIA can. But when one of my people finally actually admits who he or she is and makes the path that the individual they want to help... And they say, would you like to serve the Queen in a very special way? <laughs> and they realise that it's us. Uh, they almost stand to attention, so great is the honour. Yes, oh, abs absolutely. And this is why British spy fiction has been so important to the real world of British intelligence. Uh, to talk about the same individual that we, we, um, we can't name. Um, when he um, uh, began his career as a British um, <laughs> foreign intelligence officer um, in Southeast Asia, uh, in the 1970s, he went um, uh, to see a tribal chief in, no doubt, the uh, uh, national interest. And he assumed, as he went up to the tr uh, tribal chief, that the tribal chief knew no English. And that was probably broadly true. But as he was approaching the tribal chief, the tribal chief said, Hello, Mr. Bond. <laughs> ah, see, what our man had forgotten was that a majority of the world's population have seen and mostly enjoyed <laughs> James Bond films. So we are Nike. The competition is no brand. Mm. Um, you know, if um, our man had had to say at that point, sorry, a uh, few crossed wires, French DGSE, 
Um, sorry, a bit of a mix-up, um, uh, Jim and BND. Really wouldn't have been the same. There are, of course, um, two other um, globally known brands. One so noxious it had to be closed down instead of the KGB, and the other was, was a little bit more controversial than us, uh, the, uh, the, the, the CIA. Um, just to move back to Peter's point, it seems to me essential. The more in the national interest we can encourage crude stereotypes about, um, uh, about um, uh, British character, uh, the better it is uh, for British intelligence. It never occurred to um, uh, Russians in the, the 1980s that um, the people who might approach them uh, from MI5 were just as likely to be women as they were to be men. Now all this goes back. I mean, Stella Remington is the first female head of any of the world's major intelligence agencies. That has come until 1992. But it already goes back to the, um, uh, uh, the, first, uh, the First World War. Uh, the first female finance director anywhere uh, in or near Whitehall um, uh, was in MI5, the appropriate perhaps named Miss Masterton, in, uh, World War, um, in World War I. But in the 1920s, um, the security service, MI5's uh, chief Soviet expert was a woman called Jane Sismore. Jane Sismore had uh, joined the service straight from school at the age of 16. Uh, she was encouraged to um, uh, become a barrister. And there's a picture of her um, in uh, my history of MI5, which showed her um, in, um, uh, at the age of 24, dressed as, uh, you know, in her uh, barrister's robes, and she is MI5's um, uh, Soviet expert. Not something which could have happened in Cambridge University, not something which could have happened in London University, not something which could have happened in the Foreign Office. If you're a secret organization, uh, you can get very stuck in your ways, but you can also innovate um, in a way that is, is uh, quite um, uh, difficult if you're in more um, uh, con uh, conventional uh, uh, structures. I think Le Carre is, is an interesting study, and I'm sure that when he dies, eventually, there will be a great plethora of, of serious studies of him. Your point about um, the Russians portrayed in his more recent books, have been, you know, as you said, you know, the, um, I'm sure that's right. Um, he has rather lost his way. I said this is a personal opinion, but for him, the end of the Cold War was a bit of a disaster. Yes because actually, of course, that was his world. But also, his portrayal of that world um, wasn't necessarily any more accurate about us than his later portrayal of the Russians is. I mean, if you look at his early novels, which I agree are his best and are gripping reading very often, but actually no organisation, no intelligence service could function if people were like that. Mm. Nobody's nice. There's nobody nice. There's no humour. They treat each other horribly. They all betray each other. Mm. Everyone, you know, the general characteristic of intelligence services throughout the world is actually loyalty, believe or not. But you wouldn't know that from, from the carry. Now, this is partly because, of course, he's having to dramatise and tell a story, partly because of his own experience of when he joined. He joined MI5, first of all, in the early 50s, early or mid-50s, was it? Early. Early 50s. And... Of course, this was in the wake of all the Philby, the Ring of Fire, and all the atom spies and all that sort of thing. The world was quite different then. 
Also, you read accounts of Whitehall meetings in his books where you'll get the public school boys on this side of the table, the grammar school boys on that side. You know, there's a difference. They all know. Now, when I joined the Foreign Office in 1975, you didn't actually know where people went to school. It wasn't actually a relevant question. I mean, you might just have you got to know someone quite well be interested, you know, and you always spend your life in Somerset, where you, you know, or whatever. But you didn't distinguish between grammar school comprehensive or public school. Now, that may have been a change in 20 or so years, or maybe Le Carre exaggerated, I don't know. But you do come across elements in his books which are real and which do strike me, strike, strike home. I mean, one of them is, at one point, I remember... He has Smiley saying, most good intelligence work proceeds by a kind of gentleness. And I've often thought, yes, that's quite true. He's, he's got it in one there. Not all of it, but most of it does. But very often, the, the language, the attitudes, and what actually happens to people is quite unrealistic. I mean, people do not, in his terms, as he would call it, burn agents. That's the sin against the Holy Ghost. An intelligence service that sacrifices its own agents has had it, basically. Mm. Thank you very much. And uh, speaking of this, about well, of these cliches and stereotypes, we would like uh, to give the panel a rest from uh, their no, interrogation uh, and we'll carry it over to you. Everybody, we would like to show <coughs> the opening of um, picking up the um, way, really. of this <coughs> old film, not the, the new one, the old the best, film. The best, uh, the best, the best one. The best one. The, end, the, the very opening when four members of intelligence service come into the room. These, these are four members. One of them, they are all silent. One of them is the spy. So uh, the question is to, to the panel, is it possible to, to tell from the very beginning, from your experience, who is the spy? And and why? So let let's watch the clip first. And to the audience, who is the spy?
Right. We shall start. So the question is, was it first, first candidate who comes in, uh, Toby Esterhazy, uh, of um, foreign extraction, speaker of four languages, according to Le Carre, none of them properly. Uh, is it Roy Bland, the red brick Don, the second person to enter, smoking? Uh, or was it the new head boy, Toby Allerline, um, who enters with a pipe? Or was it Bill Hayden, who enters with the cup of tea? Um, and what's your rationale for telling us on the strength of this first two minutes of what was a nine-week installments, uh, nine installments serialisation? How can you tell from the beginning who's well, the spy? Well, I have to confess, when I read the book, I didn't know who it was until it happened. Um, I couldn't pick up yeah. anything definitive. You've already given away uh, an interesting slip, you see. He wasn't a red brick don. Uh, he was at St Anthony's College, Oxford, and when he pointed this out to somebody, he said, well, that's much the same thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> which is one of those very British yeah. jokes, yeah. Yeah. which shows you the obsession with class and status and all the rest of it. I couldn't work it out when I read the book until it actually happened. Well, well um, confining myself to the, um, the film, the good the, the, the film was, I mean, uh, those of us who remember the TV series, I think, actually think that that was, uh, was probably better. Mm. Um, I think I know who we're supposed to think did it. And the reason that we're supposed to think that he did it actually disqualifies him as a candidate. Um, there is um, uh, one person there who seems to me to behave in a more pretentious way than any of the others and to be seeking to draw attention to himself. Now, that absolutely disqualifies him from being a real spy because what the real spies have to do, they are supposed to blend in. So, uh, in actual fact, it turns out um, uh, you know, this was the, uh, the performance uh, which uh, really began. He'd been an actor for some years before this, but this was the one that uh, really, really made his his, yeah. his reputation. A hint is given at the uh, at the beginning. It's brilliantly acted, and I think it points in what ought to be exactly the wrong direction. You compare Philby. Philby was so brilliant because he he, he fitted in. He wanted people to like him. He got uh, MI5 <coughs> actually preferred him uh, for over a, a decade to anybody else. Um, in MI6 uh, SIS and amongst the documents recently released are uh, the Cold War um, uh, diaries of the Deputy Director uh, General of um, MI5, uh, Guy Little. He explains how much uh, he, he, uh, he likes With it. one exception, Miss Millicent Baggett couldn't stand him. Uh, well, uh, Miss Millicent Baggett was the no, expert on the coming terms, right. On the other hand, uh, there was such yeah. a long list of people that she could <laughs> There's a, there's a picture of her, by the way, in my book, and look at the expression on her face. Uh, she continued into her 60s, living with her nanny. Um, my God, they were a formidable uh, uh, co combination. Now, the, the, the one exception to this, uh, of course, is uh, Guy Burgess. Guy Burgess never attempted to fit in. Um, uh, you know, he was um, an extremely engaging I individual, um, uh, unashamedly gay at a time when uh, that was uh, illegal and so on. But it was a double bluff because the idea at that time that the KGB would choose somebody so obviously insecure meant that you know, nobody suspected Phil because he was nice and so nobody ex uh, suspected Burgess because he was uproarious. 
Well, of course, the trouble is we all know which one it was, so it's very difficult to to put oneself in the position of not. I, like Peter, when I read the book, I didn't guess, but looking at that, you'd say, yes, it's the one who's putting on an act, as Chris was saying. This is what he's most obviously doing. I have only, to my knowledge, met one real spy, a person who um, you know, was on our side and turned out not to be. And um, he didn't do that. He did put on an act. His life was an act, really, but this was the kind of thing you saw in retrospect when you added up all the other things about them. It's knowledge with hindsight that, that as we know, is always so valuable. Um, so it's difficult. I mean, an- another tiny example is another famous British spy who was used very, very successfully with devastating damage to us by the Russians was George Blake, mm-hmm. still alive and in Moscow. And I've talked to people who knew Blake. And one lady who served with him in Berlin was saying to me there was uh, Berlin was a big SIS station in those days when he was there. And there were different streams of reporting and nobody except the head of station was actually able to see all the streams of reporting. So, you know, if your job was such and such, if your job was economic, (coughs) East German economics, you saw all that reporting, but you might not see East German military or something like that, because that came from different agents. Um, And, of course, George wasn't allowed to see it all either. But there was one particular stream that was really very sensitive and very interesting. And she remembered him. She was in registry one day. She was putting some of this stuff away, and he said, oh, I wouldn't, uh, Janet, I wouldn't, wouldn't mind a quick peep at that. Um, after everyone who should see has seen it, if you like. Just, I mean, in no hurry, no urgency. And uh, she said it was that after everyone else. It's all right, don't worry. She showed it to him. Now, you know, it's a, it's a bit of charm. He got on well with her. He was, but she didn't suspect him any more than anyone else who served with him suspected him. So spies are, it's not generally possible to spot them, because spies are us, you know. <laughs> they are like us. I mean, we could all in this room be spies. And, in fact, we all are in various little ways in our professional and private lives, you know. It, it's just spies are like us, but they're doing something a bit different sometimes. And um, the obvious things, sudden uh, insecurities, you know, ferreting interesting intelligence that they shouldn't have, sudden access to huge sums of money... Sometimes those things do come along, but people don't act on them or don't put them all together because it's very hard to ditch one of your colleagues when it's just, I don't know, there's something about him I don't really like. I mean, Aldrich James, the CIA spy, had a lot more money than could ever properly be accounted for by his pay or by his wife's alleged money either. But that never actually... That became a factor once they started to investigate him, but it didn't lead them to him. And I have been told that there's been no spy in history who's been uncovered, first of all, because he suddenly seemed to have access to a lot of money. It's become an important factor afterwards, not mm. at the time. Mm. So you can't tell, it can be any of us. Well, having suggested that we're all potential spies, can I perhaps invite the audience now uh, to put some questions to the panel? Uh, yes, uh, do we have the microphone? Yes, I'm puzzled. Uh, Christopher Andrew um, uh, describes himself primarily as writing the defence of the realm. When the Matroican archive, uh, number two, the KGB and the world, which is about the Cold War, cold, you know, is about the Third World, is so much better. 
And, um, you know, I mean, for example, the stuff you, on Pakistan and Afghanistan, even though it, the archive ends in 1984, um, is the best thing I've ever seen on those two countries. Because most everybody else just seems to write summaries of everybody else's books. So you end up with summaries of summaries. And uh, so what you put in is the odd anecdote about the Politburo or some drunk um, official at the embassy. You know, you, you're not sort of forcing every paragraph, you know, to pay its way. You say, oh, this is, this is a nice anecdote. And it does work very well. So that's but it's just one other question alongside that. Um, in the same book, KGB number two, Matokin uh, number two, um, Kang Sheng, you know, the Chinese yeah. head of secret police, you, you say more or less that Mao's history would be completely different. He was an absolute heavyweight. Um, Chinese history would be completely different without him. Is, is that what you think? Sorry, without Kang Sheng. Yeah. Well, here's the difficulty, it seems to me, uh, that um, all authoritarian regimes uh, are naturally intolerant of a dissent uh, to a degree that um, we're not. Well, we may not like people with different views, but we know we have to, uh, to live with them. But in a one-party state, um, anybody who holds different views, it's after all uh, treasonable. They're engaged in a conspiracy as opposed to a legitimate um, uh, difference of opinion. So you know, the tendency towards gulags is naturally greater, it seems to me, in one-party states. But it all depends on the personality. Um, you know, uh, Castro has had far more political prisoners than he ought to have had, but it doesn't even begin to compare with, uh, let's say, Cambodia or China and so on. So, in other words, in addition to the structural explanation, uh, there's going to be uh, the, you know, the issue of the personalities uh, who are involved. Now, we know, and I'll give you the evidence in a moment, that uh, Mao Zedong, who's not famous for paying attention to other people's uh, points of view, did so when it came to uh, intelligence. And, before I return to Kang Sheng, which I prom promise I will uh, uh, very rapidly, there is the example, and I have been to lecture uh, at the strangely named Peking University, Beijing, uh, on somebody who I pronounce uh, as Sun Tzu, and nobody in China does, it's something like Sun Tzu, but the, um, the author of the first uh, great classic on um, uh, war and uh, intelligence, which nowadays, when Chinese leaders go uh, abroad, um, they take as to the battle of George Bush, um, uh, the younger, um, silk-bound copies both in, in English and Mandarin. Now, after the long march, uh, uh, Mao had, didn't have his copy of uh, The Art of War, so he sent out for another one. So, you know, um, here's an occasion when he's paying some attention, I don't want to overstate it, to a text which is over 2,000 years old. Now, Kang Sheng had actually been in Moscow during the Great Terror. Kang Sheng's uh, views, it seems to me, must have been influenced um, to a considerable degree uh, by the experience of, uh, of, of, of Stalinism. And uh, you know, the very fact uh, that um, Mao chose Kang Sheng when he could have chosen other people seems to me to indicate uh, that uh, he paid some attention to his his views. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd better stop there, but you've raised, raised a question which I find so interesting that I have to self-censor myself um, to leave time for other people. Just one point. I've never seen a photo, not that I could try, of Kang Sheng. Well, there is one biography of Kang Sheng, 
uh, which was uh, Princeton University Press, and I, I think does contain um, uh, a photo. In some... Oh, you, you've, uh, you've, you've got the Kang Sheng book there, have you? Oh, my book. No, the, the Princeton University Press, I think it was, um, produced... No, Yale, I'll change my mind. Uh, did produce the only biography of, um, of, of, of Kang Sheng. But also, the Cold War International History Project, which I think is excellent and has done this tremendous job since the end of the Cold War, of pulling together Cold War archives from all over the world, does um, have uh, some material which actually quotes uh, Kang Sheng during the Sino-Soviet split. And, you know, as he, as he, you know, you can just imagine him spitting these uh, words up. I mean, it's, it, he's absolutely true to, uh, to stereotypes. So it's very difficult to think, you know, during that crucial moment in Sino-Soviet relations of uh, anybody who was more hostile to the Soviet Union than he was. Anyway, it's in, in material which you can actually find on, uh, online and probably put Kang Sheng into the search index in the Cold War International History Project, you'll find it. Thank you. The gentleman in, in the middle of the um, row. Thank you. Um, just a question about the, the process of writing itself. Um, and I'm, it's probably a, a, a question particularly for Alan, um, but the other panellists may have comments as well. I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm interested in um, w writing while you're working for an organisation, particularly a politically-led organisation, and the sensitivities and the complexities that go with that, in terms of um, what I'm assuming, in your case, Alan, drawing, drawing from your experiences of working in the Foreign Office and internalising that and coming up with all sorts of ideas of turning that into fiction, and the editing process that goes into your mind in terms of, I would assume, being very sensitive to... Um, uh, making sure that it's not obvious who you may be referring to or how you're developing a character that may have been your line manager or a minister or whoever it may have been. Um, um, so I'm just particularly interested in, in, in just your reflections on, on how you went about that and, and, and thinking, you know, as and when this book is published, you know, one wants to make sure that one isn't seen to be sort of uh, putting oneself in a difficult position with former colleagues or, or indeed um, yeah. political bosses. I think you're right that all the time there's a kind of self-censoring process that's going on because you think, well, th they wouldn't let me write about that so I won't even write about that. But I can write about this, which was actually very like that and I can give it some of those characteristics. When it comes to people, it's usually, I think most novelists would say you're not doing a portrait, you're not... You're using an aspect or a couple of aspects of someone which have inspired you, so that, and you're taking those and exaggerating them, or you're leaving out other bits and adding different bits of your own. So characters are inspired by, usually, rather than based on, in my experience. But also, I've found that people do not recognise themselves in books, which may be fortunate, mm. all of us, but they really <laughs> just don't. As regards what you can write about and what you can't, I never had any trouble. All the time, as a government servant, I was required to submit anything I wanted to publish, you know, to see if it was okay. And I found, as long as you were straight up with them about it, as long as you said, this is what it is, this is what it is, and they were absolutely fine. And um, they would sometimes suggest, make requests. I mean, in the case of Legacy, which is set in MI6 in the 70s, 
um, they requested two tiny alterations, which was the removal of two acronyms. That's all, simply because they still use them. The fact that actually the story is inspired by a real case didn't matter. Mm. But so, you know, it's not been a major problem. I think it's the same for any institution. I mean, one of the glories of the House of Lords is it's actually beyond the novel and beyond parody. I, every <laughs> week, there's a big, I mean, I came in just before Christmas with, with a three, after lunch, with, or just, just lunchtime, actually, with three heavily betweeded uh, ministers from the 1980s. And a fourth one said, uh, uh, have you come back from a memorial service? Who is it, you see? <laughs> well, that is beyond parody, because that's <laughs> normally when we cluster together, you see. And also, not long after I'd gone in, there was a couple of naval officer friends coming in for a cup of coffee. I'm going up the stairs, and one of the naval officers says, uh, what makes the House of Lords run? So I said, ask my old friend X here. And he said, the House of Lords runs on gossip and the exchange of symptoms. Yeah. <laughs> Which is profoundly... But again, if you wrote all this up, as an, you have to live with people to go in the next day, you know. And they're, of course, very tolerant. But the great advantage of being in the Lords is a... I'm not a novelist, as a political historian. One has lunch with one's exhibits. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the way to look at it. I think I we think. had uh, one last question. Yeah. Um, yes, my, my question actually was not dissimilar to that in that the description for this session um, talked about a discussion of the balance or conflict between the day job and uh, the writing of, of fiction. And I think um, Alan has partly answered that, certainly. But I wondered at what point there are conflicts that arise, um, whether it's um, conflict around particular issues or just between the balance of, of holding down a, a conventional job and um, producing fiction, which makes the, the situation untenable. Really. Well, I think if you, were, if you were working for MI5 or MI6 and you wrote a novel... Uh, about, say, an agent operation, which was based on a real agent operation, and the agent might have been identifiable from your novel mm. because of the field he or she was working in or something like that, then that would be an absolute no-no. But beyond issues of identification, are there other, other reasons, other issues? Uh, There's techniques, account. aren't there, Alan? There are certain techniques. Yes, there are techniques, uh, identifying techniques they wouldn't like either. Mm. But in terms of, do you think, attitudes or something like that, or, 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 um, or what, what sort of thing? Um, I suppose really just the, the issue of, of juggling the process of holding mm. down a, a conventional yeah. job, whether that's in an intelligence organisation or in any organisation, yeah. well, generally speaking, with the production of a fictional yeah. life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Most, most writers of fiction actually have other sources of income because their books don't sell enough to, you know... And traditionally, many of them have. I mean, Graham Greene, I know, later on was very rich, and, but, but, you know, he was sub-editor on The Times, he edited, literally edited on The Spectator and all the rest of it. He did those things whilst working, and lots, most people have. Le Carre, I think, gave up MI6 on the publication of his third book, didn't mm. he? Spy, Spy came in from cold, cold, yeah. Which became a huge million seller. <coughs> and then his accountant told him he could... Mm. If you want to be a novelist, don't work in the Department of Work and Pensions. That would be nice. Ah. <laughs> this is a bit, I mean, it's, it's indispensable, but it's somewhat limited, really, in terms of possibility, isn't it? On, on that note of um, writing of uh, spy fiction, briefly to say that uh, last, before Christmas, I established uh, a competition amongst LSE staff, uh, students and alumni to uh, produce an opening chapter 
of a, th a spy thriller modelled on, loosely speaking, the most famous of them all, that's to say James Bond. So we took the opening paragraph from Goldfinger, and I'm able to say now that we had a, a short list. Yes, this is not the only awards this week. Yes, this is the second set of awards. And we had four entries um, in no particular order, from Mark Richardson, um, from Stephanie Chang, uh, from Steve Bond, so aptly named, and also from Joe Pearson. And of those four, uh, the first prize is awarded to Joe Pearson. So thank you very much, Joe, for your entry. And if I may, after the, um, we've finished formally, I'd like to give the prizes to the other members of the shortlist who were uh, Steve Bond, Stephanie Chang, and Mark Richardson. So if you could see me at the end of the event, I will give you your prize as well. But at this moment, I think I need to turn to our guests and thank them for a really stimulating session. Um, I've wanted to ask one question, but I don't think there's time now. We had a visit from the Queen about two or three years ago. She met Nobel Prize-winning economists in this glorious institution, and her question was, didn't you see the credit crunch <laughs> coming? Uh, <laughs> Did you, when, when did you see the end of the Cold War coming? That's it didn't. It never came. <laughs> no, I, mean, I wouldn't have bet anything on it happening right. because the pattern of behaviour of the Soviet Union when somebody played up in the Soviet uh, Empire was to thump them. I mean, and, until, unless you wired up that meeting of Gorbachev in October 1989 in East Germany, with it Egon Krenz, I can't remember, and when he said, if, if it gets out of hand, you're on your own, our lot are staying in barracks. I mean, if you'd actually put that up as an assessment uh, into the, to the Joint Intelligence Committee, they would have offered you counselling at the very least, because it was, it was just not foreseeable, was it? There was this, to, to my mind, silly idea that intelligence would give you the answer to that. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, it was the general study of the, the, the society. So anybody who just read Topfield would have got, it seems to me, a rather better indication, even though I haven't read the Joint Intelligence Committee report for that. Remember what Topfield says? Absolutely counterintuitive. The most dangerous moment for an authoritarian regime is when things begin to get better. That's right. Yeah. was boring, but broadly speaking, apart from jokes behind his back, the authority was not threatened. Uh, the attempt to fix the system, um, uh, the Gorbachev years. Uh, so actually reform was what brought the Soviet Union down and nothing else. There's a counter-cultural argument to that because George Robertson, who was General Secretary of NATO, a very witty bloke, um, again, just when I was coming into Parliament, he, uh, we travelled back from Aberystwyth where he'd been doing a lecture, I'd been doing a PhD, which takes several days, as you know, so you get to know people. <laughs> And uh, I said, what am I going to say in this maiden speech? Because it's a debate on the House of Lords. He said, well, when I was in Moscow as Secretary General for NATO, I said, if only you'd had a House of Lords uh, equivalent in Moscow. And they said, what do you mean? He said, well, you could have decanted Brezhnev and the others in there before they became completely hopeless. Um, and you might still have a Soviet Union. And that's the real justification to round off the story of the House of Lords. It was the perfect receptacle when we decided to stop executing failed politicians. <laughs> so the real secret of the Cold War is if only the Soviet Union had a House of Lords, yes. then we'd still have a Cold War to write about. There you are, it's just a thought. On which note, <laughs> On which note, may we thank once again the, the panel, Alan Judd, uh, <laughs> and Andrew, and Andrew.